Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast about history and how to think about history. For more on this episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can find links and readings related to today's podcast, comment on the conversation, and sign up for our newsletter. And consider becoming a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room, a community of Patreon supporters. Hello. In 1776, a massive British fleet of more than 400 ships carrying tens of thousands of soldiers arrived outside New York Harbor. Many of those soldiers were German, hired from their princes by the British government. Americans then and now have called them Hessians. For the next seven years, these German soldiers marched, fought, and suffered seemingly everywhere in eastern North America, from the walls of Quebec City to the sandy beaches of Pensacola Bay. When the British army left, many Germans were left behind, both the living, deserters who had found new lives or others who settled with loyalists in Canada, and the dead. Indeed, just this summer, on the battlefield of Fort Mercer across from Philadelphia, an archaeological dig discovered a grave with the remains of 13 German soldiers, and that just a fraction of the Germans who died in that place on October 2nd, 22nd, 1777. With me to describe the Hessians and their American odyssey is Friederike Baer, Associate Professor of History at Pennsylvania State University, Abington College, and author of the new book, Hessians, German Soldiers in the American Revolutionary War. Friedrich Baer, welcome to Historically Thinking. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, this is a very exciting book, um, as I was saying, because it, it answers many, many uh, questions and destroys many mythologies. Uh, but first of all, um, the biggest mythology, which we'll never be able to destroy, and will, is that they were Hessian. So first of all, where were they from, uh, other than Hesse Castle, which is, I guess, where the Hessians were from? And we'll go through like the basic facts and detail, and then we'll go into the rest of our narrative. Yes, I think yeah, that's a great way to start the conversation. So, um, uh, of course, there was no Germany at the time. Uh, so the, the uh, six territories that hired out troops to Britain um, all belonged to the Roman, uh, the Holy Roman Empire, which was a kind of a loose um, federation of mostly German territories, predominantly in Central Europe. Um, so there were more than 300 of these territories. Um, these six territories that ended up hiring our troops, as you mentioned already, are Hessen-Kassel, Hessen-Hanau, Braunschweig-Wolfenbüttel, Ansbach-Bayreuth, Anhalt-Serbst, and Waldeck. Hmm. Um, and because the, uh, a large portion of these troops came from especially Hessen-Kassel, but, but also Hanau, which was ruled uh, over by the hereditary prince of, of Kassel, um, because so many of these troops were from these two territories, they're collectively known as Hessian. And that label, that name um, um, already was used during the Revolutionary War. I think it was used as a slur. Uh, it was associated with, you know, it definitely had negative connotations. Um, so it was a label that was used collectively for all German auxiliary troops, regardless of where they were from. Uh, so the question of how many came over is somewhat fraught. So what's... What's the problem with calculating that? One, one would think that the muster rolls, given that they were being paid per head, yeah. 
you would think yeah. that they maybe they got bombed. I don't know. Maybe these maybe they, there's <laughs> uh, maybe the, the maybe there's a lightning lightning always strikes archives. They attract lightning. So, <laughs> oh, so how many did come over? What's the ballpark? Well, I mean, we usually we use the number thirty thousand, um, and that number has been used also since the war when a German editor by the name of Schlötzer, uh, who, who edited a very popular journal. Um, uh, sort of calculated, he went through the treaties that were concluded over the course of the war and he estimated that ultimately around 30,000 German troops made their way across the Atlantic to North America. Now, um, that that number, I think, is probably a little bit higher. Um, and recently, other historians have also thought that the number is maybe more closer to 32, 33,000, something like that. I should also emphasize that when we are look, really using these numbers, and I've used this number in my book as well, we tend to focus on the members of the Corps, the soldiers, the troops, the sta- general staff, whoever is sort of officially on the payroll, so to speak, and hired, mm-hmm. contracted out. Um, but we also have hundreds if not thousands of civilians who yes. come over um, that may be servants, that were members of the medical staff, uh, lawn uh, yeah, women, many women, hundreds of women, probably hundreds of children. Mm-hmm. Um, so the number really is larger than the 30,000 that we're typically using. Um, the way that breaks down roughly, and I'm just going to, these are estimates. Um, mm-hmm. We estimate that maybe 20,000, as many as 20,000 come from Hessen Kassel. Um, then we have maybe 5,700 or so from Braunschweig, Wolfenbüttel. Uh, about 2,500 from Hanau, 1,200 from Waldeck, 2,500 from Ansbach-Bayreuth, and about 1,300 from Anhalt-Serbst. So the numbers vary widely from like 1,200 Waldeck to 20,000 Hessen-Kassel. Um, so, but again, this does not um, include all the civilians. And if I want to, I want to just give one example of, uh, of the kind of information that we have available. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned, you know, some of the records may have been destroyed. I think that that is probably the case. One of the challenges with researching a, a something like this is that we actually have an almost like an overabundance of records. I mean, it's, <laughs> you know what I mean? It be, it's amazing. It's for a story and it's like a blessing and a curse. Yeah. Because it's wonderful that you have we have so many records that do remain in archives in Germany and the United States and, and other places. But it also at some point becomes overwhelming. And we have these um, master roles, like you said, embarkation lists, and then we have financial records, and they're in German, and then in Britain, you know, held, you know, kept by British officials. And then over the course of the war, some of this becomes like wars tend to be quite chaotic and and confusing. Mm-hmm. Um, so even officials at the time complain like, how many how many men are we paying and where they are they and uh, how many have we lost and how many we, do we need to send over to replace who we've lost? So it's it's confusing, yeah. but we do have some that give us an idea of the composition. So I want to just give you a quick example of the third Waldeck regiment. So only Waldeck only hired out one regiment. Um, the, the strength typically was around 670 troops. And then with the first shipment in the fall of 76, 
you have also 14 members of the artillery. We have around a dozen members of uh, or men that belong to the general staff. And then there are 32 women and 19 children. These are the individuals belonging to the score that boarded the transports. Now, two children we know are born during the voyage. So we have 21 children. And then we have, we know also that on every voyage, of course, um, passengers died of disease. Um, yeah. So we have this kind of evidence of the presence of women and children and civilians, but it's um, not consistent. It's hard to, to really, I think, hard to come up with firm numbers. So even more difficult to figure out how many made it back to Germany. Yeah, I mean, we we think that um, the the best numbers for this is that of the thirty or so thousand, about seventeen thousand went back at the mm. end of the war. But uh, we also know that um, individuals went back over the course of the war um, for whatever reasons. They were discharged, maybe injured. They got you know um, what we called whatever. Um, so um, those numbers too, I think we have to look at the, all of these with. I think we have a very good general idea, mm-hmm. but we don't know for sure how accurate they are. And what? what sorry to ask you a, yeah. a, a number, but this is uh, that's a lot of soldiers that came over. We should point out that some of them who were hired actually stayed in Europe. Uh, yes, uh, to, uh, man, Gibraltar, I think, was actually the, where the first group of German soldiers went, but they think they were from Hanover. Yes, um, they're not considered they're part not of considered the part of this. That's but right. as, as the war begins with France, then there's a need to have sol- German soldiers sort of in Europe. But this is a, a but what proportion of the percentage of the British army in North America is actually German? That's a good question. So um, we uh, estimate that as at, by the by 1780, 81, 82. Um, more than 30%, maybe 31, 32% of the British regular army in North America is uh, comprised of German auxiliaries. So I'm emphasizing regular army because the British army, of course, had other allies, whether it's um, provincial troops and Native Americans and so forth. But 30, I mean, a third, that's that's a lot. (laughs) That's a lot. That's a lot. I think a lot of people don't don't yeah. appreciate how important it was for the British to have these troops with them in the war against the rebels. And I would reckon, I mean, there what there are 15, sixteen colonies in North America alone. I mean, or no, more if you can't um, more than that because there's East Florida, West Florida, and at right. least two two in Canada. There must be so there. Let's say there's seventeen colonies in North in North America. I think that's right. There must be Germans in every one of them. At one time or another, you mean over the course of the war? Yeah, over the course of the war. Yeah. I guess Mass- maybe not Massachusetts because that was too early. But no, everywhere, okay. everywhere else, <laughs> they were yeah. so so the good. Yeah, so no, I mean they were they're not in they're not they're not fighting battles in Massachusetts, but um, the convention yeah, as, army when the convention, prisoner, as prisoners, yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, they were they were everywhere, and so you're absolutely right. So I think that's another um, um, when. What I felt is like when when I started researching this, and I I myself learned a lot about the Revolutionary War in the process, because when you hear about the Hessians, when people, you know, I hear all the time, oh, the Hessians, yeah, Trenton, 
You yeah. know, uh, maybe they have heard about Saratoga, maybe Yorktown, but that's pretty much it. And then on top mm-hmm. of that, you get the the images of uh, they are all mercenaries and mm-hmm. their commander Trenton was drunk, and you know mm-hmm. there's certain images. And then, um, but in reality, they were, uh, as you also mentioned in your introduction, they they were. Um, everywhere uh, along the east they were not in the western theater that's the only area yes, but in, cool. in the yeah. eastern part of the united states of, uh, of the north america so the first troops actually arrive in canada the first mm-hmm. germans that set foot on american soil arrive in canada and quebec because um of course um, this is um after the uh, attempted invasion by the Americans of, of the province. Americans are still around in the spring of 76. So they're waiting for reinforcements. So some Germans are sent there. And these are some of these Germans who participate in Burgoyne's campaign into New York um, the next year. And then the next, um, the, the Hessian, um, the two divisions and also the Waldeckers, they arrive over the summer and early fall of 76 in New York. And they'll be part of that campaign. And then, all these troops and the other ones arrive, some of them arrive a little bit later in the war. They will be in Canada. Some will spend the entire war in Canada. Um, to their great disappointment, some will never see battle. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's true. I mean, you know, some of them, of course, go to war because they want to, you know, participate in these campaigns. And some of Anhalt Zapp specifically is basically in garrison in Canada. Um, uh, all, throughout the all all the rebellious colonies, um, you're right. They did come too late to be part of Lexington, Concord, and Bunker Hill, and all of that. But there are prisoners of war in uh, in around in, in in Boston and Cambridge in that area. So I want to. We're going to divide this up into three yeah. parts: uh, how it began, how it went, how it yeah. ended. Um, and the how it began is I, I could we could talk about this for so long, but it's the the primary question is why uh first of all why did the british need them why did they need to go to german princes and say could you hire out some soldiers to us so it's important to keep in mind that um the use of foreign troops in 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 was not an unusual practice in fact it was common and accepted in europe at the time as Many uh, uh, states or territories regularly uh, contracted with other territories to use their um, uh, military or uh, soldiers in wars or just to kind of uh, enter into treaties to kind of have them available should they need them. And Britain was no exception. Britain had used foreign troops for more than a century, including Germans. So, so that's a kind of a starting point. It's not um, unusual, uh, surprising uh, practice here. And from the from the mindset of London, they're already using Highlanders. Those are, they're who are who are just as foreign as Germans are from an English perspective. Yeah, I guess they, so. Yeah, they speak a different language. They're half naked. They paint themselves blue for all we know. <laughs> um, and then they use and, and they use Irish as well. So, I mean, why not use Germans? At least they wash. So yeah. that's. that's <laughs> <laughs> this is it, Europe is much more divided. Even in, we we impose a sort of national yeah. lines on the map that they didn't see for themselves. That's right, and I think there. I mean, there are there are you know uh, there are skeptics in Britain too. That why we should we use Irish Catholics? You know, yes, that's exactly. very problematic. Yeah. You know, um, so the uh, so the uh, you know when the the war breaks out in seventy six, um, Britain had. Um, 
maybe 8,000 or so troops stationed in the rebellious colonies. And of those, uh, 3,000 or so were in Boston. And it became clear pretty early on that uh, more troops were needed if they wanted to put down that rebellion. And uh, the commander at the time estimated that they needed maybe between 20 and 20,000, 25,000 soldiers. Um, So the king was reluctant for various reasons, including political reasons, to raise new regiments in Britain. Um, There were also concerns that they would not be able to raise the sufficient number of men throughout the British Empire, including in North America. Um, In other words, they needed more men. And... um, so they began to look into for, to foreign ter- territories pretty quickly. They first turned to Russia, with which whom they had also had treaties before. Um, they asked the Tsarina for 20,000 men, and Russia ultimately declined. Um, they then tried to get the what's known as the Scots Brigade, which had been essentially on permanent loan in the United Province of the Netherlands. Uh, after some back and forth, um, they allowed Britain to potentially use it, but not outside of Europe. So that was not particularly helpful. And by that time already, um, several German rulers had offered troops to Britain, knowing what was going on uh, and anticipating that Britain would need soldiers. Um, so by the summer of '76 fall of 76, it's pretty clear that Britain would use Germans and by the fall, they send an emissary, his name is William Fawcett to Braunschweig, is the first territory to start negotiations. One thing um, that is um, important to keep in mind is that this, again, was, it was not really surprising. It was not surprising that Britain would rely on Germans once again. But what was different about this war is that these Germans were not hired to defend British interests in Britain or on the continent, but they would be sent abroad to another continent to fight against British subjects. Mm-hmm. So this raised a lot of questions about this so-called soldier trade and generally. Is, is, this, the, is this appropriate? Is this even legal to, to be able to do that? Before we get to the reactions to mm-hmm. it, which are yeah. fast, the fascinating, the German reactions as fascinating as the British reactions. We American yeah. reactions are the Declaration of Independence. But yeah. uh, why did Hesse Hanau have twenty thousand soldiers to send? I mean, that's a lot of men. It's a relatively, it's well, no, it is a small place. So, or Hesse Castle, Hesse Hanau. Why did they have so many? This is a, a fascinating wrinkle of being German in the a German prince in the 18th century. Yes, that's a great point. Yeah, it's Hesse Kassel that sends so many yeah. Mahano a few, but yeah, we yeah. can. They're often lumped together too because of they're both Hesse. <laughs> um, different rulers, but they're father and son. Um, so um, yeah, that's a, a good point. So why? So important to keep in mind, and, and I think that's what you know, I try to focus on this a little bit too in my book. Um, there is again this idea is that they are signing these contracts for all these men who need to be shipped to America like in a matter of weeks practically. I mean, mm-hmm. this is urgent matter. Um, and uh, we seem to kind of assume these regiments are ready to go and you just put them on ships and they go to America and that's it. And it was a lot more complicated than that. Um, the territories um, were eager to maintain large armies because it gave them influence, um, you know, it gave them power and influence within 
Europe, um, with European affairs within the empire. But especially smaller territories didn't necessarily have the resources to do that. Uh, they couldn't maintain these armies. It's expensive to do that. So maybe Prussia can do it, but hasn't Hanau and these smaller states can't necessarily do it. They just don't have the natural resources or products or whatever that would make them enough money that would generate enough revenue to do it. So they want to have a military, but at the same time, they need funding to, to maintain that. And in order to get revenues, essentially, they hire out their, their soldiers. So if you look at a, a soldier as a commodity um, that you can hire out on the international market, then, I mean, that's, I think, a, maybe simplistic, but one way to, to understand this. But that's so what they did. So when a soldier is, is, is being hired out, they're not getting paid directly. They're being paid as members of the prince's ar uh, army, and they continue to serve the prince, um, but the prince has decided they will fight for the English crown. Is that so, well, uh, so when, they, when the princes sign these treaties, and they say, I'm going to give you 5,000 men, and their infantry, whatever the terms are, the treaties generally, um, there are some differences, but they generally um, include the promise that the soldiers would receive British pay, which was relatively high for the time. So the soldiers would actually get pay. Now, in some instances, the British um, emissary, the people that negotiated these treaties, um, demanded essentially or required the rulers that the pay would be issued to the soldiers directly because they were worried that the ruler would maybe take something off. Yeah, yeah. Take his so, head off the top. Exactly. And the, People the like to say in Philadelphia. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and the, the, the relatively high in pay was meant to, of course, also help with recruitment. You know, it's attractive um, by German standards. Um, so the... German, the soldiers, when they were when the regiments were formed, they were um, marched to a place of embarkation, either in Germany or in the United Province of the Netherlands. At that time, they were basically handed over to the British, and they swore then allegiance to the British crown without, however, relinquishing allegiance to their respective ruler. One thing, so these are not existing regiments in garrison in these principalities. Some of them are. But not, but some of them are raised within a matter of weeks. Yes, so they're all, of course, they have, uh, they have uh, soldiers on furlough. Furlough, they have uh, regiments, uh, but they, they, none of the rulers is particularly eager to send whatever they have to America for obvious reasons. I think they're all a little bit. They're concerned that they would um, deplete their territories of young men who they may need to to work the fields and all that, but also to defend their territories mm -hmm. should something happen. And they also just don't, literally don't have this number of soldiers required. So what they're all doing, they have different kind of conscription schemes, but what they all need to do is they need to uh, build up existing regiments or create new regiments that can be um, sent to America. So they're starting usually with some kind of group, you know, number of, of men that are veterans, that are soldiers that, you know, but then they need to build up these regiments to the required or contracted strength. And these men are fresh recruits. And these, the officers seemingly are, there's a, an, a surplus, an oversupply of officers uh, who are anxious to get, have so, somewhere to fight. 
I'm thinking of the ubiquitous Avalt and yep. I think Viterholm. These are guys who are in their 40s, late 30s, yeah. who've already fought all the way through the Seven Years' War as children and then as, as young adults. Yeah. And now they're desperate for something else to do. And so they can join one of these new regiments. Yeah, so raising the officer corps was not challenging. Uh, it's absolutely, not, it's very easy. yeah, it's and these you're absolutely right. They're career soldiers, many from the aristocracy, but not all of them. There are men that rose through the rank, but for them, of course, in, at the at that time in in Germany, it's, it's there's no war going on, which good i would say but for a soldier <laughs> who wants to advance maybe right or yeah. you know or, or in glory whatever that's uh this is an opportunity for them to really to advance uh, uh, and uh make a name for themselves so um i looked through some folders at in for uh anhalt selbst um uh uh these records, these records are in the former East, East, in former East Germany, and some of them had not really been exploited. And there are petitions, letters from veterans, soldiers, uh, officers, or or university students who want to become an officer. And they specifically say, "I want to enlist, but only if I get to go to America, because oh. they see it as an opportunity for for a career and for moving, you know, up in the military." So there's. Actually, an abundance of interest in becoming an officer in this in this new corps. Right, let's just call that of the, of the and, yeah. um, but the office the soldiers, non commissioned officers are have they are they they're not being drafted. They're coming from existing reg, regiments. I don't know how that works, um, but and everyone else is a draftee. I mean, no one's enlisting, are they? I mean, oh, or yes. volunteering? Oh, they uh, do. Well, yeah, so. So they, they don't have drafts in the modern sense. They have what we call the sort of, the system is basically, um, I'm generalizing a little bit, but basically what they had is um, the territories, they every they had regional office officials that would have lists of men that were eligible for military service, you know, of a certain age. Um, and then they would come in periodically to be measured, the height and all that, and inspected. And many ended up in, in garrison regiments, basically on permanent furlough, but um, once wow. a year maybe would come in, you know, um, that's very common. Um, so when the war breaks out, these officials are need to raise um, men in their in their in their, re in their assigned regions and so they go to these lists and they're going to try to find men that were deemed by their local governments to be expendable mm -hmm. and what that does mean that means men that were um, poor maybe or um, younger sons without the prospect of inheriting property uh, maybe petty criminals um, foreigners um, <laughs> meaning you know in that in that sense in the 18th century um, so Someone from Lubeck. Exactly, exactly, uh, exactly. So that's important to keep in mind too. So the troops from Hessen, yeah. they're not all Hessians, no. <laughs> literally. Yeah. Um, they're actually coming from all over because uh, recruiting a foreigner, of course, is, is perfect. You know, it's perfect because it's not a loss to the territory. Yeah. Um, so they are trying to pull these together. But it turns out very quickly that that's they're not gonna it's not gonna be enough. So we know that men that were deemed to be not expendable, um, only sons, property owners, apprentices, uh, university students, um, you know, men in certain industries were all also um, recruited for for these regiments. That elicited a lot of complaints from local officials because they're like 
the villages here are being depleted of these men. And even if a ruler believes, well, he is a poor man, he doesn't really contribute much to the local economy, this man may have a wife and three children who are relying on him. So we have a lot of really tragic stories about breadwinners essentially being sent to America. Now, you mentioned, you asked about voluntary Yes, there are also men who see this as an opportunity to, uh, you know, this is an adventure, perhaps Mm -hmm. for some military service. I mean, it's also, you know, exciting in some ways. Um, It's maybe a career opportunity for some um, escaping difficult circumstances. We have people who are naturalists who are like, hey, I want to explore North America. That's fantastic. (laughs) No, seriously, they're writing books. And letters about, you know, trees and mushrooms and animals when they get here. They're searching for mastodon bones in New York. Um, We have poets who have a very romantic understanding of what war is like and want to kind of be part of this. And also this this image of North America, this land of liberty, is is enticing to some people. So it's an opportunity to go for free Mm -hmm. to another part of the world, something that most people at the time, that was unheard of. So it, it strikes me. So they, they they march to their ports. They yep. swear their oath. The the, the King George the Third. They get on their transports. And it struck me. Strikes me. You you are a historian of the nineteenth century, and you know a lot about nineteenth century German immigration to the to the North America. Um, well, yeah, I'll just say that you do. But it strikes <laughs> me. It strikes me. What a weird, almost. Uh, parody of the immigrant experience this is. They're all immigrants. <laughs> there are 30,000 immigrants, heavily armed, coming to the you know shores of North America. You know, in, in the 19th century, I don't know what the ratio is, but a, a much more substi- uh, much a larger percentage of immigrants came to America and then returned to Europe than is part of American mythology of immigration. They're these temporary immigrants who come over from Italy, drive a cab for five years and go back. Or, or what have you. And so in a weird way, this is like the first large influx of temporary immigrants in American history. That's what they kind of are. They go through that, they go through that shipboard passage of death and birth and, you know, looking yep. at the fishes and complaining about the conditions. It's just exactly the same thing that you would read in like a 19th century immigrant experience. Yeah, I think that's true. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Um, so briefly reactions. Mm-hmm. Um, is it interesting? There's the reaction amongst Germans. We I, we know about sort of Franklin mm-hmm. writing his thing about hiring soldiers. Let's just leave that to one to one mm-hmm. side. Mm-hmm. Um, what's interesting to m- my mind was the most interesting was the reaction of other Germans, and not just like the three percent of liberal opinion in Germany at the time, <laughs> but the uh, but Frederick the Great, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so, could you describe some of the reactions from from the princes to the to the to the intellectuals? Yeah. So, c- criticism, outspoken criticism of this is muted uh, for for various reasons. One of them being censorship laws. Um, yeah. But we do, and you mentioned uh, the King of Prussia, um, and he's famous for being an being an outspoken critic of these kind of arrangements. He could get away with it, and he writes. Um, we have correspondence with him with other important figures in um, in Germany, and he is uh, critical because 
uh, one reason is that he is worried about um, sending so many uh, young men uh, out of Germany. Um, and there's concern, you know, like, what does it do? Does it leave these territories vulnerable to foreign attack? Um, he is also um, at that point, although traditionally friendly with Britain, he is uh, not not particularly excited about Britain uh, winning the war. I would not call him an, an a friend of the Americans at early on. He would ultimately recognize Ameri- the, the American independence, but not after until after the war. So he's sometimes he's portrayed as being like a sympathizer of revolution. I, I don't wouldn't go that far. Um, but he is, yeah, he's he finds it very problematic that these uh, rulers are entering these treaties. He's, he knows that some of them are in debt and it's designed to pay down debt and he understands that, um, but he is um, critical. He uses words similar to what um, French critics would use, things like they're leading, you know, they're sending their soldiers um to America, like uh, cattle is uh, being uh, led to 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 the butcher, you know these subjects. The kings are tyrannical, you know, sacrificing their subjects. Um, yeah. This is similar kind of language that um, some of the French critics are using. Mm-hmm. Um, they're also quite outspoken, at least uh, sort of the intellectuals at the time. So he is, um, yeah. Yeah, and he does try to initially. He he try he causes a lot of problems. He prohibits troops from marching to, through Prussian territory, so they have to d- take a, a huge detour. He really tries to cause uh, uh, problems, but in the end, he does not prevent. He does not prevent. He's not able to prevent um, the shipment of these troops to America. Is it? I'm just finishing a book by a new book by Jonathan Singerton on uh, Austria-Hungary and the American Revolution. Yeah which I thought would have been an oxymoron. I had no idea. And it, it, it turns out there are a lot of people there who feel the same. I, I don't know what the empress or the emperor, later the emperor Joseph feels. They're a little bit, they're, but they're ambivalent towards the British uh, actions. And they, they're no friends of right. the American cause. But at the same time, they're extraordinary, much more ambivalent than I would have thought towards yeah. the, uh, the hiring out of, of German soldiers. Yeah. And, you know, when you read um, periodicals, this is sort of the age of uh, periodicals. I mean, this is like boom times and quite a few of them will start covering the war as much as they can. I mean, it's often a second, third hand knowledge, of course. Um, But it's interesting to to read uh, these um, edited sometimes by sort of romantic poets and and literary figures. Um, They will be very critical of the hiring out of the troops, but they are also uh, part of it is that there is there seems to be a resentment towards Britain. Britain kind of seen as sort of this arrogant, you know, um, uh, neighbor who's dictating, you know, a lot, a lot of the the, the 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 things that are happening throughout Europe and the rest of the world. Um, uh, because so, they they also see Britain not just as Britain, but they see it as the Elector of Hanover. So they see there's, I guess, yeah. from a German perspective, they see it as not, the, the King of England is also a German prince in, 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 oh, yeah. in his way. Well, he is. He is. Yeah, he is. He's related to several of these rulers. I mean, that's yeah. another thing. There's a, these yeah. dynastic or familial we, ties. Americans and even the, the English to this day kind of downplay that aspect, yes. which was at the very, at the, I mean, absolutely key to 18th century power politics yes. is that the, the, the King of Britain, the King of Britain is also a German prince. He's Hanoverian. His wife is German. 
When the um, uh, the 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 wife of the Braunschweig commander Friederike Riedesel, when she 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 follows her husband to America with her three young daughters, and she's kind of stuck in England for a little bit because she kind of misses a boat and has to wait for the next season. She goes to the the, the court, and to her, it's like a, ger- a German uh, <laughs> royal family basically, and she loves it. They speak German, and so. There's definitely that connection. Um, we'll get as back well. to her. One of my favorite people in the oh. American, my favorite people in the American Revolution. Uh, but, to, yeah, go ahead. I just want to mention one thing for these. Even the critics of the the treaties, or these yeah. uh, one one dilemma, of course, that they're facing pretty quickly is once this is happening, once German troops are going to America, once they are here about battles, it becomes very difficult for them to remain really critical. Mm-hmm. At that point, some of them will literally say, "You know, what are we going to do? Like, hope they get defeated." Or do we wish them luck? <laughs> and so they're torn, you know, yeah. between pride of uh, Germans being part of this and and kind of the, the hope that the Americans will prevail. Yeah, yeah. Always the way. The uh, People might also be surprised that the, there is a, a, a British reaction against this as well. Oh, yeah. Uh, which is, I mean, even by people who are support generally supportive of the government's actions in North America, because this takes us back to like uh, 17th century memories of Charles the first bringing in the Irish to suppress mm. people. He doesn't like this is, mm. this is classic tyr- tyrant stuff from yes. the British perspective. Yes, absolutely. I mean, the, the, the opposition in Britain, which is quite sizable it's not a minority really um they are very very outspoken about and that's in newspapers but also in parliament um uh that this is a big mistake um this is first of all it's really expensive um and it is also really problematic to hire essentially the subjects of tyrants that's how britain britain looks at itself as very enlightened of course a parliamentary monarchy and all that, um to fight for you know to put down the rebellion um uh, so there is uh, I- importing these Germans into the colon the colonies um, is is seen as 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 dangerous and potentially undermining what Britain is trying to do. At the at the least, it's a bad look. It's definitely bad look. It makes Britain look really pretty weak. That it has, and there, that's exactly what you get. That that it has to rely on these petty princes for support mm-hmm. is uh, sad. <laughs> and it's, I mean, and from. The king's perspective and his ministers, I mean, that's just catching them in a rhetorical whipsaw because they daren't raise more troops because that also inspires. Yeah. I mean, Americans today never understand how weak the British army actually is compared to the rest of Europe. I mean, I think they, I once told it up, there's something like eighth or 10th largest army in Europe. And they're not compared to, yeah. you know, they're, they're not a, a big army, pretty well trained, pretty professional. Mm-hmm. But France, mm-hmm. there's France, and then there's Austria, and then there's everyone else. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, and so to you, and, and no one wants to raise more soldiers for the army, because that's contrary mm-hmm. to all the principles of constitutional monarchy mm-hmm. since 1688. You can mm-hmm. have a big navy, but you have to have a small army, and that's the way it is. So this mm-hmm. is the only option they have, um, mm-hmm. ultimately. But let's get to, let's get, mm-hmm. we, let's finally get to America. Um, <laughs> they arrive in New York Harbor. And immediately they, uh, this is like the first phase of the Germans in America. They're feared. They're greatly feared. Um, so let's talk about some of the American fears of the Germans. Yeah. So these, 
the image of of the, the Hessian as the sort of this cruel mercenary, you know, who will not give quarter, uh, rape women, plunder homes, burn villages, uh, that image uh, uh, emerges before the Germans set foot on American soil. Um, and I think it's used by the American patriots, as we call them, to um, build up support for independence, um, you know, to really, really get people, the colonists, uh, up in arms, literally, uh, you know, support for independence, but also then mobilize them in the war, especially sure. in region where that support was kind of considered to be lukewarm. So that image is there. And then over the oh. fall of 76, um, during the New York and New Jersey campaign, um, there is there's plenty of activity that uh, seems to confirm the fears. Here's um, Martha. Here's Martha yeah. Reed of Trenton describing a visit when when the Hessians yeah. finally ar- arrived at their house. In stalked several strange men and a couple of women who looked like giants and giantess, giantesses to us. They were so tall, which is people always remark on this, which is very interesting because mm-hmm. Americans are supposed to be taller than. The English right. at the time. Yeah. But demanding a silver buckle from her mother's shoe, one of the women snatched the buckle and pulling off the shoe, wrapped my mother in the face with the heel. The woman was then rebuked by an officer. Nonetheless, these Hessians were such that they eventually, they killed a family hog and cut it up on the mahogany dining table, which is a great, you know, we've got yeah. the cupidity, we've got yeah. the uncouthness, yeah. we've got the difference in body type. Yeah. It's all there in that anecdote. Yes. Yes, and there there are many stories like this, and again, yeah. especially the violence against the civil, you know, what we call would call now civilians, you know, people that are not soldiers. Um, uh, they are over and over uh, be, uh, portrayed as 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 really um, not really abiding by what people would consider like sort of the laws or standards of warfare. You know, they're mm-hmm. behaving in ways that are would be considered uncivilized. And they often are compared to um, Native Americans, um, savages. That's the language that, that's being used. And I think part of, of here, part what's happening, and some of these stories are true, I think. Some of them are embellished or, and some of them are completely made up. It's hard to tell here truth from um, a fact from fiction. The one, the, the one really disgusting one, David Fisher tells, I've, I've read it, found, I think I found yeah. a trace, of the Quaker who fired a gun at a Hessian who was butchering a cow that was still alive. That, was, that one oh, always sticks oh. in my head. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, people tell stories like that. I've wondered how much of this is like the 30 years war being remembered. You know, I mean, <laughs> is it, 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 it's a possibility. People know about German wars. They're terrible. I, I don't you know, how, and how much of this is, I mean, by this time, there are already 100,000 German immigrants. There are more German immigrants yeah. in Pennsylvania and the back country yeah. than Scots-Irish, or as many, uh, despite the Scots-Irish having all the publicity. And I wonder how many of them are saying, oh, my God, this is exactly what we try to get away from. You know, and how many of them are telling stories, you know? I mean, if you're a Palatine, a Palatine German, okay, your most of your problem had been historically the French, but... Uh, nonetheless, you must be like this. Is uh, I, I wish I wish I could trace some stories to the to the to Germans already in America, just like the fears from them. But that that would be impossible. Well, I mean, we know that the German Americans um, that had uh, encountered the Hessians and they talk about it. Uh, they're as you can 
as you suggest, and their their relationships were very problematic. I mean, the German-Americans were not pleased to see them. Um, <laughs> the German troops, on the other hand, thought it was really fantastic in places like Germantown to eat German food. There was even a German language newspaper, you know, yeah, yeah. It's like, well, it's like, we do speak German here. That's like almost like home. I, I, I don't know. You know, I think, I think that, um, yes, there's plenty of evidence of plundering and, and, and atrocities as, as there are in pretty much every war. Yeah. And I would also, based on what, what I've, what I've found and I read and, and seen here in these records, it happens on all sides. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is, I think, again, some of these stories, we, we have to consider that they're used, that they're published over and over again as a way to mobilize defenses, to really depict the enemy as a monster mm-hmm. and to, you know, help in the war effort. Um, and again, I'm not saying that therefore these stories may not be true, but we have to consider that. Yeah. I mean, the Americans, there are Americans who also complain about Americans plundering and oh, the yeah. troops are coming through and doing, you know, stealing, uh, you know, crops. Yeah, and, I, and, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put, I mean, slaughtering a hog in a mahogany dining room table sounds pretty much like, you know, Wednesday. and you know so the german troops when they're going through um when they're talking about places like new jersey or that or when later when they land in in maryland and making their way up to philadelphia they they talk about they describe villages that had been plundered and from their perspective it's it was the americans that did that so you know Anyway, it happened. Plundering is a, is, a, is a terrible fact of, of life. I think during the war, yeah. uh, it happens. Um, were the Germans more guilt, guilty than than others? Maybe. I mean, we have some evidence, but Avald yeah. does say that the uh, Donop took two hundred wagons. He counted them supposedly. He had to protect them. Uh, two hundred wagons of plunder from Bordentown and Burlington, which he thought was excessive. It was so, excessive. Yeah, there are critics I, in Britain too who, at some point, especially after Trenton, say all that plundering, it's slowing them down yeah. and it's part of the reason why we're losing this war. So. Which is where, and, that, and that was actually what, yeah. that's what Avald thought at the time, that this, yeah. was, this, was, this was a little much. It was a little much. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, this is what 18th century armies, yeah. um, this is the benefit of being a soldier in the 18th century is, is, is lifting stuff. Yeah, and you know, and I should mention, just like Washington tried to curb it in his with his troops, how and and the British commanders also did. You know, they yeah. uh, they threatened severe punishment. I mean, obviously, it undermines local support. It's it's not not good, but it's the, the when the Germans write about it, and when they do write about it, they're not. If it's just plundering, it's one thing. I mean, violence is another thing, but taking stuff. They're usually not particularly ashamed of it, and the way they look at it is like, um, especially during times when they were ill, poorly supplied, they look around and they see a lot of wealth. They really mm-hmm. don't see a lot of prosperity in America, you know, and they cannot necessarily distinguish between a loyalist and a patriot. So they see this and they feel like, yeah, you know, we'll take <laughs> some of it, uh, and it, it doesn't necessarily seem to bother them that much. I wish, I wish we had more time to talk about their reactions to yeah. America, but um, which are, are fascinating. But the, there's after Trenton, after the yeah. defeat of Trenton, it seems that they're seen as both light-fingered, but also bumbling. Yeah. Uh, and that happens by both – what's fascinating also is that happens from both the, both the Americans and then the English and the Scots feel that way. The British feel that way as well. 
Yeah, so Trenton, of course, uh, in, in December 76 was a major blow. Um, I, uh, important to, to keep in mind that until then, things had been gone, gone going very well. You tend to forget that. I mean, the yeah. fall is actually fantastic. <laughs> and then they yeah. go into winter quarter. And, oh, no. Um, so, yeah, the defeat is embarrassing. Uh, for sure. Um, this garrison being overwhelmed, taken prisoner. Um, the number usually there, we get maybe 900 troops. I think the number of individuals is probably more like 1,000, 1,050. If you, again, if you count women and if you count civilians. Um, so that's substantial. Uh, and then Princeton, of course, after Trenton. Well, you, can't, you couldn't blame the Hessians for, for Princeton. That was a, that was an well, all... Exactly. That was a, so that Trenton was... is the one that yeah, they are. Yeah. Trenton, the defeat, um, is is an embarrassment. Um, Raoul is often, the commander at the time of the garrison, is often blamed, he's often described as being drunk. There's no evidence that he was drunk. Um, but he was, uh, you know, famous for uh, the successful attack on Fort Washington. Um, he's part of that and uh, well-liked by his men, but apparently was not a very good commander in a situation like that surprise attack. Um the reaction is by the Germans is interesting because the Germans don't feel that they are that this they feel they had been deceived by the Americans who kind of snuck up on them in the middle of a storm on Christmas. I mean, come on, you know, <laughs> overwhelming force. Um, they, you know, they, so there's this trying to explain that the Americans are sort of deceitful. They're not real soldiers in like in a, you know, you would see in a yeah. traditional European war. Um, and then it's easy to blame it on Raoul, who's dead. I mean, yes. he died. Um, it does, it, for the Americans, it's a major, and that's what it's most famous for, a boost in morale mm-hmm. at the end of the, close to the end of the year after a not very impressive campaign for the Americans. And for the British, I, I, what is important to keep in mind, like, the critics, of course, point to it and say, look, we told you all along, these soldiers are not fit for this American war. But the war, this I mean, this defeat also ironic, ironically helps prolong the war. And with that, the need for more German soldiers. <laughs> so the Landgraf at first is, is like, oh, no, are they now not going to want soldiers anymore? No, quite the opposite. Yeah, they need, so it's an American they... victory, but I think for the Germans, it's... It's looking back. It's Red Bank Wash. is more. Yeah. Red Bank is more. Well, let's talk about Red Bank, Fort yeah. Mercer, Red Bank, which is the um, the battle no one knows about. Um, <laughs> true. I mean, it's like I looked at the map. It's like due south of you, like ten mile, fifteen miles yeah. south of you, where you are, um, and uh, it is. Uh, it's like Bunker Hill, only much more decisive in terms of the attacking force. It's like probably, I mean, it's even, it's the second Trenton in many ways. And in many ways, I, at least I've always believed, I, I guess Avalt says this, so I believe, I, I tend to trust him, that he, um, that it happens because of the humiliation of Trenton. Um, so could you, could you set that up? How, what, what happens? This is, this is, uh, I, I'll, I'll do a little bit. This is October. The British have entered into Philadelphia, but the Delaware is still not cleared. And the Royal Navy and supply ships can't get up the Delaware to resupply the army. And so there's a real threat up until mid-November that the British will have to evacuate Philadelphia if they can't be resupplied by the fleet. And one of these, Washington has two hands sort of gripping the windpipe of the British army. And one of them is Fort Mifflin, uh, which will eventually be bombarded literally into a mud puddle. 
um, yeah. before finally being abandoned. One of the most courageous defenses in American history, really, again, that no one knows about. And the other hand on the New Jersey side of the Delaware right. is Fort Mercer. Right. Um, so Howe decides to eliminate, if you eliminate one, you eliminate both. Right. Um, so he decides to eliminate Fort Mercer. So take it away. Yeah, no, absolutely. So this is in October 77, and you're absolutely right. Um, the our British Army is struggling in Philadelphia. They can't get enough supplies from the countryside. They are really le- relying on, na- throughout the entire war, that's true. They need the Navy to be able to reach uh, their their um, wherever they are along the coast. Um, so, yeah, if you know Philadelphia a little bit, it's basically across from the Philadelphia, where the Philadelphia airport is now. Mm-hmm. So they're sending, so yeah, the connection to Trenton, and that's you're referring to Ewald, Ewald had to say about it. It's um, the um, commander, Carl von Donop. Uh, he is uh, at Trenton, he's not at Trenton, but he's not far from Trenton in, in winter quarters. Um, and he's supposed to be available with his men in when needed. Uh, he's When Trenton happens in December 76, he's essentially lured away by an American force to uh, take him further away from Trenton. Make a long story short, he's unable to come to Trenton to rescue. Because he's flirting with Betsy Ross. That's my story. That's, my, uh, that's, <laughs> that's a better story. Okay. <laughs> yeah, we'll, put, we'll put that in the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> it's the the nicest yeah. the nicest uh, might have could have happened. Yeah. So the, he the... is uh, he he gets a lot of criticism after Trenton. It's like where were you? What happened? You know. And so um so what Abel is suggesting and others have suggested that Donop sees an opportunity here for him to himself redeem his honor, but also generally the honor of the Hessians. Um. So he's a German force, roughly maybe two thousand, maybe a little bit more uh, more um. Men, uh, grenadiers, some Ansbachjägers are part of it as well, and the uh, the what was called the Murbach Regiment is sent under Donop from Philadelphia across the river, and they march towards what the Germans called Red Bank. It's Fort Mercer, but the Germans uniformly just refer to it as Fort Red Bank. It's very confusing in New Jersey since there are two Red Banks, so you have yep. to you have to watch it. Yeah. So it's at that point there's a command, the American Christopher Green, maybe 500 men are stationed there. And yeah, they go there and they demand surrender. And Green says, nope. Uh, 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 I think Donop had anticipated that this would be a surprise attack. But Green, the Americans knew about it. They were prepared. Um, uh, the Germans also thought that they would get support from British Na- from the British Navy. And they never made it up the river. They were never there. So um, what happens is they're uh, completely, it's a mismanaged expedition. It's really Really, very tragic. They, they take um, no. They take no artillery. Um, they they just. I mean, they are grenadiers. They are ideally suited to storming a fortification, but they are just completely casual and and. They have no uh, ladders. They no. didn't. They didn't really uh, inform themselves very well about the structure of the fort. That they, the how tall the walls were and all that. So they were really unprepared. They stormed. Ewald says. Um, they marched against the fort with indescribable courage. I mean, he's there and witnesses this, and it's just horrible. They meet a barrage of fire from the fort and rebel ships from the Delaware. And so um, the fight doesn't last very long. At the end of the day, um, more than 400 casualties. Donop uh, amongst them, mortally wounded, dies a couple of, of days later, um, buried at, near the fort. Um, 
Ewald says uh, something along the lines of he had never left the battlefield in such deep sorrow. And he is a veteran. He's seen he, a lot. Um, he fought through the entire seven years war. Yes. Uh, it's, so, it's when he says that, that's, yeah. yeah. He, I think he lost cousins. Yes. Old, old, old friends. Old um, friends. Many officers were amongst the casualties. And I think that's one reason too, why it shows up in the records, you know, um, so in a, more than some other battles, but it just, incredible uh Murbach regiment is decimated will never really play a role again in the war so it's a tragic and um in and i think you mentioned in the introduction um that recently um the historian jennifer janowski and the archaeologist wade katz um mm-hmm. part of a team that uncovered i think at this point it's remains of 14 hessians is it now for 14 okay yeah, yeah. And they're they're doing work on this i'm it's 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 one of the things that they've already shared is that just the the, the state of the bones and the, the skeleton remains indicate how violent this was. Mm-hmm. Um, so a, a total blow. Now, a month later, a primarily British force, force takes the fort. So yeah. they are able to clear these uh, eventually, but October October is a bad month for the Hessians. This is also Saratoga. It's so also Saratoga. So that's, we, we're, we're going way over time. I know. This yeah, is, I know. And, and so I, it, <laughs> that's my fault. Um, but it's the Saratoga. This happens almost simultaneously. Well, Ten yeah, pretty, days much. pretty much simultaneously is I know thousands yeah. of Germans part of the Burgoyne's yeah. army are going into captivity. So yeah. let's let's talk about the Convention Army because that's actually um, I think about the Convention Army frequently uh, because at, as ever I'm driving around Charlottesville, Barracks Road Shopping Center is named after yeah. where the, the Hessians had to build their barracks, and they advertise themselves with a guy on a horse with a a sort of mitered cap. I'm oh, not really? sure. I'm not sure. Not sure why. But um, so so yeah. So let's talk about the convention army because that that's a it's a that's a fascinating, such a fascinating story uh, in yeah. and of itself. Yeah. So those were the there. Yeah, that was the army under Burgoyne that was captured at Saratoga in October '77, and that included uh, roughly 3,200 Germans, Brown from Braunschweig and from Hessen Hanau. Um, and those troops under the term, yeah, so the, the commander, um, the Burgoyne, um, uh, they were able to work out a treaty or terms of convention, as they were called, that stipulated that the um, German troops would be sent back to Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, they would not be considered prisoners of war in the conventional sense. Um, those, So that was, um, you know... Um, yeah, that was the agreement, but it never, never was carried out. Um, the, the Convention Army, British and German, was first marched to Boston. Um, they were in barracks and there were some officers in Cambridge, um, Massachusetts. And then um, in, um, in the fall of 78, that Convention Army move, was moved down, to, moved down to Charlottesville. The Germans were moved down to Charlottesville, separate from the British. By that time, the army had already... Uh, been reduced in numbers um, because of desertion. You know, it, it, desertion was not a huge problem, but in times of ex- prolonged captivity, it tended to mm-hmm. go up. You know, well, you know, I mean, they could, they could get a job. I mean, this is it's, yes, uh, yes. You, you, you cite uh, I forget the, na- the name of the, the book. He studied the um, the Lancaster POW camp. Camp. Oh, Ken Miller. Ken Miller. Ken Miller the yeah. Guests. Such a great, such a great book. Yes, I mean, yes. that idea of farmers literally lining up, queuing up to get when yes. new POWs arrive, queuing up to get you know, higher laborers. Well, this is a Absolutely. very, a very attractive proposition. So, when, 
so real quick so the americans decided right right from the get-go that they would treat their german prisoners different from the british prisoners because mm -hmm. especially after trenton when they had all these prisoners suddenly overnight and you know um they thought well the, the, the image shifted from this like horrible cruel monster to innocent victim of tyrants <laughs> and if we treat them well, and right, I mean, they were like yeah, forcibly yeah, pulled, right. they're doing the king's bidding, they're not really, they don't really want to be here either. If you treat them right, we show them how so many of their countrymen live here in, in, the, in the colonies, they will probably run away. So they're treated well and farm, renting them out, essentially letting them hire themselves out to local employers, farms was one strategy. Now, the convention army is a little bit different. Now, some mm -hmm. of the members did that, but because they were not conventional prisoners of war, they weren't initially eligible to be exchanged or and, and so forth. Within a couple of years, they do essentially become prisoners of war, but not initially. So they're yeah. taken to Charlottesville, where a, a Virginia delegate, John Harvey, neighbor to Thomas Jefferson, had land and said, hey, government, give me a contract. I built barracks, and then they can move here. So... Some people make money off this. They do. And they get uh, there, yeah. And then they talk, live there. Can we talk a little bit about your namesake quickly? Uh, <laughs> My namesake, yes. Friederica, because she's she's wonderful. Um, and she ends up being, I mean, she's one of the only people that we, we only know about Martha Jefferson, basically, from her, because they become friends and they live next door. They live on, Philip Mazzei has gone back to Italy to raise funds for Virginia. Right. He leaves Cole, his, his failing vineyard, um, yes. and, and the leader cells, uh, they, they rent it. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So what's very common, uh, some people may not know this, uh, but officers, especially high rank high ranking officers are usually during captivity, um, basically allowed to rent their own quarters, which can be expensive, but that, that means they're not in prisoner camps. You know, they're living in sometimes pretty nice homes, including in this case, Kali, absolutely. Uh, they're also neighbors of Jefferson, of course. Jefferson is not governor at the time. Patrick Henry is. Jefferson is around. The Reed Diesel family, so the, again, the commander of the Braunschweig Corps and his wife, Reed Diesel, and at that point, three daughters um, become friends with them. They socialize with them. Um, there's evidence uh, that they uh, have dinner together. They attend a theater together. There are other officers uh, also that go to use Jefferson's library, play the violin with him. And even after the end of the war, return to Germany, they continue correspondence. Jefferson continues to write to them. Jefferson visited Germany um, uh, after the war. Wiedesel um, is, is very interesting. Wiedesel published her memoirs. Yeah, so um, good. <laughs> and yeah, it's the only known record that we have of a woman who was a member of the German Corps. I wish we had more. We have yeah. very, very little written by. So she writes this and it's to her, it's, it's a, uh, I'm sure scary, but also very exciting time. So she's a part of the convention army. She has two more daughters while in America. The first one, uh, one named America and one named Canada. <laughs> <laughs> um, and when they return to Germany, she has two more children, one named Charlotte after the queen and one named George after the king. So, yeah, so that's, but she's uh, interesting. She befriends, she also meets Lafayette um, and she meets a lot of very prominent, on all sides for her. And that's, I think Jefferson has the same attitude. It's okay. We're at war, but we also have a lot in common. We are, you know, in, uh, for him, I think we are of a certain social class. We speak French together. Uh, we share interest in music, whatever it is. So they're socialized. Um, 
and uh, Skylas. They make friends with the Skylas as well when they're mm-hmm. up in uh, near Albany. So she has a very interesting experience. Great record. If uh, her memoirs have been translated, so if you get it, your hand on it, it's a it's a it's a good, it's a good read. Yes. Um, so let's yeah. talk about very quickly how it ended. Um, mm, didn't end well. Know, <laughs> if I had five bucks for every Pennsylvanian who said that they are descended from a Hessian, oh. which which is hilarious because I mean there were already a hundred thousand Germans in Pennsylvania by that time. Yes. So yeah, yeah, and yeah. all of them, many of them, with much better. Uh, yeah. Origin stories than being a than being a German <laughs> a mercenary a subject of some yeah. you know prince prince and, and Hesse. Um, so how many? But we talked. We said we said about seventeen thousand. Um, seventeen thousand uh, returned. Mm-hmm. So that's thirteen fifteen thousand did not. So what are we looking at in terms of death uh, and versus like desertion? How many people actually did stay behind? So we estimate that um, maybe 7,500 died, 1,200 or so actually of wounds or, or killed in battle. So mm-hmm. disease, as, is, as you know, is, that's the biggest killer. Um, uh, maybe five, between five and 6,000 ended up staying in America. Um, of those, probably half went to Canada. So yeah. that's another thing. I often hear like, oh, they all stayed happily in the land of liberty. Well, yeah, you have to really think about, put yourself in the shoes of someone uh, who fought this war, it's 1783, or maybe they're leaving during the war, um, but let's say it's 73, we're getting ready for evacuation, what are my options? Mm-hmm. Um, if I get discharged and stay here, that's one thing. Um, many people maybe wanted to discharge, they didn't get it, they just took a chance and deserted. But desertion is still risky, the war is not over, you're forfeit, forfeiting a property that you may have in, in Germany, you may never see your family again, so it's a risky step. So Nevertheless, maybe five or six thousands or so did it. Britain offered land grants in Nova Scotia and other provinces, and some of uh, which it offer, also offered to loyalists. I mean, many Americans went north as well. Mm-hmm. So some took advantage of that. And we have documents that uh, sh- uh, you know, show what, what happened to these individuals. And then we have maybe 2,500, 3,000, something like that, who remained in the colonies. Um, most, I think, settled in predominantly German-speaking areas, Pennsylvania, Maryland, Virginia, also in areas where they had been prisoners of war for extended period. They, yeah. Like you said, they worked for employees, they married local women, you know. They probably so, kids yes. by that time. Yes. So we have, there's a whole community of people out there that are actively researching their ancestors and they're descended from these Hessians. Um, the majority of people of German descent are not descended from Hessians. Um, then probably not even descendant from 18th century immigrants, uh, maybe 85,000 or so had come before the war. They're probably descendant from Germans that came part of this huge Im- Im- race of immigrants of the 19th century that you already mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, uh, yeah, the Hessians is a relatively small percentage. So um, we don't know. I mean, we, we talked before we began. You decided mm-hmm. to limit yourself and mm-hmm. not... You take a second, like a second research project. What happened to the seventeen thousand yeah. who returned? But we yeah. have we have some. I mean, some of them survived. Okay, Raul did not survive. Donop did not survive. We have some idea of what's happened to some of the officers. Well, I mean, uh, officers who, who they somehow continued uh, on other assignments. Of course, um, like mm-hmm. Reed Diesel served in the United Provinces of the Netherlands. I think at some uh, after that. Um, mm-hmm. 
and uh, Ewald, Johann Ewald, the Jäger, he uh, he remained active and he published a couple of military treaties um, on the war in which he used his experiences from the American war on the, what we call the Petite Guerre, the, I don't know, mm -hmm. little, I don't that know what the war. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, some of them, they just went I, right back to uh, other up, assignments. He ended up as a lieutenant general of the Danish army too. So that, oh, so, uh, confronting Napoleon. So that was, oh, uh, so, that's a very old man. And and you know here that, that and again in for, in a foreign army I mean yep you know unless you own territories at war that's what you right. that's where where your career his, is taking his you. father was a school teacher so it was like yeah, he it was like yeah. he had he had to do that I mean yeah. that that was like his advancement uh, was to seek employment uh, yeah. as a, if he's going to be a soldier he had to he had to move around where the work was. And I wanted, there's another really good book for, for those who are interested, um, Daniel Krebs, A Generous and Merciful uh, Enemy. Um, he he talks, his book is specifically about German prisoners of war, and he goes a little bit in what happened after the war. And one of the points that I remember from, from his study is that some of these veterans wait for decades to get their pensions. It's not unlike in America, where also mm -hmm. some of them really waited a long time. Yeah, like eight, so 1830. It's, it's not easy. Not easy for some of them to come back. And again, many of them had been poor to start with. Now they're coming back. Veterans discharged of no use. Um, maybe you spent five, six years in America. That's n not easy to find your place in, in, a German, in German society after that. Finally, do, do we have any sense of them bringing back dangerous ideas with them? <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a good question. You know, um, they, of course, saw a lot in America, and they were. Ex but one thing to keep in mind is, from a German perspective, and I'm generalizing a little bit, and I'm reflecting more the officers' views because they are much more, much better documented. Sure. The officers from the very beginning were very skeptical about the true motives of the American rebels. Mm -hmm. They saw, from their perspective, it was a small group of leaders ultimately selfish, power-hungry leaders that were uh, manipulating the people to fight in a war against what, from their perspective, was an indulgent and generous king. I mean, look at the wealth of the colonies. They had done very well under the British rule. So what are they complaining about? The other issue is slavery. So the Hessians, they, they, they did not know necessarily, uh, they were not familiar necessarily with sort of the details of the institution of slavery, but they saw how white people treated black men, women and children free and enslaved. And that to them was a major contradiction right mm -hmm. from the get-go. We have a, a chaplain at some point is saying like, if there is a people that should be or, uh, fighting for liberty, it would be black people in America. Mm -hmm. So the fight for liberty, as the Americans claimed, and then the enslavement of thousands of thousands of people, for many of these observers, it just didn't make sense. Could you talk about one of the things we uh, you, you mentioned, and, and we were talking about this before we began recording, mm -hmm. about the very interesting extra 200 people that came over to Germany yeah. with, the returning, with the returning Hessians? Yeah, from the very beginning of their presence in North America, the German uh, regiments actively recruited uh, black men in particular, uh, mostly as musicians, but also as servants, laborers, and in some cases, privates. And then over the course of the war, uh, as we know, thousands of enslaved black 
men, women, children sought refuge with the British Army because T various, tens of, tens of yeah, various proclamations offering them freedom and so forth. So this happens particularly, of course, during the Southern Campaign, but not only in the Southern, even in Canada. There are, mm -hmm. there are, it happens in Canada. So some of them attach themselves essentially to uh, German military units, and they many were reclaimed, ran away, you know, uh, but at the end uh, of the war, some were sent over to Germany as gifts, uh, not voluntarily. So some ended up with the armies of plunder. We have to all keep all of that in mind. But at the end of the war, in the summer and fall of 1783, we have documented two, at least 200 uh, black men, women and children who do go with the regiments back to the German territories, especially Hessen-Kassel, but also Braunschweig and other places. And we have records that they are they're baptized in garrison churches. Um, they often sponsored by high-ranking officers. They marry um, German women. They raise children, many especially drummers, highly valued, sort of this European idea of having exotic-looking people as musicians. Uh, fairly well-paid, stay in the army uh, for extended periods. Now, Disease there too was uh, a killer, uh, literally. I mean, some of them shortly after their arrival in Germany did not li live long lives. But um, yeah, they. Um, it's complicated to talk about how much choice they had in this, but there's evidence that they did decide to go back to Germany rather than stay in America and potentially be re-enslaved or enslaved for the first time. Some of them were free. My guest today has been Friederike Baer. She's Associate Professor of History in Pennsylvania, at Pennsylvania State University, Abington College, and she's author of Hessians, German Soldiers in the American Revolutionary War. Friederike, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you so much for having me. Truly enjoyed it. And thanks so much to you as well for being a part of Historically Thinking. If you like the podcast, then share it with a friend or many friends. Vivian Lundy is our assistant producer. John Ruddat is our sound engineer. I'm Al Zambone, and I'll be back next week with more history to think about and to shape the way we think about the present. 